0: Hi, I'm Malcolm Maiden, and welcome to the Yarra Exchange, the podcast covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, brought to you by independent Australia fund manager, Yarra Capital Management. My guest today is Katie Hudson, head of Australian equities research and a director of Yarra Capital Management. Katie has more than 20 years in investment markets. She was formerly a managing director at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and has worked as a portfolio manager in the team for over 12 years. At Yarra, Katie runs Small Cap Portfolios. She's Portfolio Manager of Yarra's Australian Smaller Companies Equity Strategy, which has delivered a 14.5% per year return since its inception four and a half years ago. That's significantly outperforming its Small Ordinaries benchmark, which has returned a little over 7.65% over the same period. Hopefully today we'll learn some of the secrets to that success. We're recording today at an appropriate social distance at opposite ends of a long boardroom table in this extraordinary coronavirus period. Katie, thanks for joining
1: me. Good morning, Mel. Great to be here.
0: Katie, so this has been an incredible year in so many ways. But just looking at the markets and coronavirus, 2020 started pretty well. I think we were reasonably optimistic going into 2020. But then along came coronavirus, it went global, and uh, the markets completely collapsed, really. From the market peak in late February to the market bottom on uh, 23 March, the ASX fell 36%. Then it came back really aggressively, bounced really sharply, and from that bottom in March to now, the ASX 200 is up 45% or so. At the end of that, it's still flat and there's obviously a lot of argument about where it's going to go. But still, those a huge move for the large cap into the market. How has the smaller part of the Australian share market uh, that you follow and that you own performed during that sell-off and that recovery?
1: Yeah, thanks, Mel. Uh, Yeah, so the the small cap part of the market going into COVID was actually trading at a 15-year discount to the large cap sector, so already at a pretty significant discount, and it fell harder as we went into COVID. So the small cap sector actually fell 40% during that sell-off that you referenced, but has rebounded harder. So no surprise, as risk came back on, people flooded into small caps. Australia was doing better, relatively speaking too, both from an economic and a health perspective. And I think that's definitely a a benefit to small caps. And so what we've seen actually since that um, bottom that you referenced is small caps have actually rallied by nearly 65%. So a massive rebound. So where you talk about the ASX 200 being flat, uh, in fact, the small cap sector for the year is up uh, about 7%. So that's incredible.
0: And then... Uh, there's the portfolio you manage. It's different and it's meant to outperform. Has it outperformed?
1: Yeah, I'm pleased to report it has outperformed over that timeframe. So uh, obviously the market fell. The portfolio over the time frame we've been talking through this year has outperformed by more than 700 basis points, which is, which is pretty strong. And the portfolio has actually rebounded by about 77%. Uh, it's hard to believe, given what we were talking about in March, but it's, it's been an incredible rally and, you know, we're really pleased with, with how the portfolio has performed. Uh, it's been resilient uh, and also has participated, obviously, in, in that very strong rebound.
0: So compared with uh, your historical performance, that sounds like it's pretty much bang in line with the way you've been tracking year to year.
1: Yeah, so there's a few things I think that I'd call out in terms of of why we've managed to do that. Uh, And it's always important for us to reflect on what went right, what went wrong, and to understand that. I think the benefit we have is that we invest across a four or five year time frame. So we're always thinking about our investments over that time frame. And what that allowed us to do was hold the course on a number of positions when the COVID disruption hit. Uh, We didn't change our assessment in a number of cases about the long term opportunity. We were prepared to look through that, not react to the momentum. Uh, And that meant as the market rebounded, those positions have rebounded very, very solidly. I think the other thing that benefited our portfolios is we're paranoid about balance sheets. So when uh, you know permanent loss occurs when companies have to raise capital dilutively in the middle of a crisis, there was minimal impact from our portfolio companies from that factor. So being paranoid about balance sheets definitely helped us during the crisis. And probably the other, the other thing that helped us, I think, is taking that longer term mindset. We looked at COVID as a disruption opportunity, to buy some really great businesses at significantly uh, better prices. Net wealth was a a good example, where we really took that sort of three or four year view and said, is this business going to be still a quality asset generating the same sort of cash flows as we come out of this cycle? And there were a number of opportunities where we sort of opportunistically, I think, bought into some really good businesses at better prices.
0: Even good businesses can get wiped out by this kind of thing, though. So... How did you get to the point where you were confident enough to stay with companies that were in the portfolio, but also with some of them to invest even more to actually up your exposure in a way? Uh, how did you get to that point knowing that this that this thing was so big that it's that it's possible that companies that don't deserve it can get taken out by something like this I think yeah or, or do you disagree
1: Yeah, no absolutely it, it was different to other crises in that this wasn't, you know, an economic cycle that was obvious, where good businesses suffered in a lot of cases as much as poor businesses. Yeah. Uh, The infrastructure sector was a great example of that, where a number of, you know, really high quality, long duration infrastructure stocks.
0: they have basically done all the right things.
1: Correct. And always have been thought of as being very resilient, very quality revenue streams, were completely carted out uh, because traffic stopped or because we stopped traveling. You know, so airports saw no revenue. So it was a really very different cycle in terms of the companies that were impacted and how to think about it. And the contrast I draw is, you know, if you think about the GFC as another crisis where, you know, share prices were significantly affected. The GFC was all about debt. Uh, and it was about debt markets freezing, and companies that had refinancing needed to swap debt and equity. And that was a pretty simple equation for investors to understand, because while it was extremely painful for those companies and the shareholders, we could understand the maths. You know, we were swapping debt for equity, we were diluting existing shareholders, but we were understanding how that would impact our valuations. This was different because this is a liquidity event where in a lot of cases there was either sharp or in some cases, almost, you know, complete standstill to revenue for a number of companies. And so we had to really understand how the impact of that sharp fall in revenue would impact the company's ability to fund its operations, yeah, to fund so its cost.
0: We used to look at the sort of the penny dreadfuls sort of the resources sector. And um, the first thing we'd look in the quarterly reports to was cash burn Yep, because it was all about cash burn for those little guys and really it became about cash burn for just about everybody in this that's
1: exactly right and that's where i was getting to was this was all about cash burn the problem is we didn't know how long we needed to um, have liquidity and the ability to fund the cash burn because we just didn't know how long this was going to go on for so it was a different equation and yeah it was a different way of having to think about companies ability to see their way through
0: Can you talk a little bit about you're only as good as the information you get and the way you sift it. Can you talk a little bit about what Yara does? I I, I know that it's a a research heavy outfit, but uh, perhaps you can take us through that.
1: Yeah, sure. So we undertake really intensive research on every company and industry we invest in. Uh, we do over 1,900 company meetings a year, and that's not just meetings with the companies we invest in. It's it's all around the companies. So it's it's meeting with their suppliers, with their competitors, both listed and unlisted, uh, with their customers. Uh, we meet with the board, very important part of the process to understand uh, who's sitting above the management team, what their attitude to risk is, etc. Uh, so it's a really research intensive process, and as you can imagine, that looked a little different when everybody was working from home. What was interesting actually was we actually had a 29% uplift in productivity working from home. Uh, we had 29% more company meetings uh, for the same period uh, as last year, which is interesting uh, reflection on on how we operate. Um, and, and and you basically would have been Zooming or something like that on those? Yeah, absolutely. So so you miss a bit in terms of the conversations you're having with a company when you, you're on a Zoom call and when you're looking at them face-to-face uh, or in a, in the same room. But I I think we're lucky that we have a large team with really deep relationships with the companies that we invest in. So I think that definitely came uh, to be a benefit uh, as we worked in that environment from home.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Zoom AGMs, which are underway right now, apparently the feedback on those is pretty good too.
1: Yeah, which is interesting because there's been a a bit of an outcry from shareholders and certainly the proxy advisors about whether uh, there's a disadvantage to shareholders having a Zoom AGM, but in some ways it's actually making it more accessible for a bigger group of people than less, and I think we'll actually move forward thinking this was actually a benefit, not a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I agree. Now, what I'm hoping I can do is ask you about some of the stocks that are in the portfolio and how these principles were applied. Tell me what stocks are in there and also what stocks are not, because this rally that we've been talking about off the lows in March has been driven to an extent by some absolutely red-hot tech stocks in this market. It's similar in that respect to uh, the USA.
1: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, look, not owning all of the tech stocks is not deliberate. Um, There's a valuation element. There's some that we think are really good businesses where the valuation makes sense. There's some where we think people are completely overestimating both the durability of the revenue and the sustainability of the economics of those technology businesses. And, you know, we can talk about those as we go through. In terms of some of the things that are in the portfolio, as I mentioned, you know, we really tried to focus on using this disruption as an opportunity. Let's see what great quality businesses we can buy at much better prices. So that was a a definite focus. And I mentioned net wealth as a good example of that. The other thing we tried to focus on in terms of the disruption was, are there good businesses that are having some short-term revenue disruption uh, where we think that will prove to be temporary? Uh, where the the business is still going to be in good shape on that sort of three or four year view. And we're happy to take advantage of that short term disruption when the market is very focused on that that short term uh, event and take that as an opportunity as well. Uh, And in particular, we tried to focus on companies where the revenue may have been paused, but maybe just deferred rather than lost. And to build out an example of that, um, there were a number of healthcare companies, uh, Helios, Integral Diagnostics, Nanosonics, where they had some short-term disruption, uh, where we felt that that revenue would actually come back to those businesses. These are Um, the ones that you held going into Corona? So some of them we held going in, uh, some of them we took advantage to, to buy more. Uh, and some of them we bought for the first time. Uh, And where, you know, radiology, pathology, uh, medical device sectors, uh, where the disruption did uh, create short-term revenue holes, we really felt that that revenue would be deferred rather than lost uh, and would rebound quickly. That's what's happened. Uh, What we've seen is those companies have rebounded um, very hard, in some cases at higher levels than they were before, because you're layering on the revenue that was deferred during covid onto their normal operating revenue. And in fact, they've rebounded to a stronger extent, which is good. Yeah, so there's definitely been some really great opportunities. You know, other areas we're exposed to in the portfolio, uh, some long-term thematics around recycling and waste through uh, Bingo. Uh, We think now is the time to own hard assets and risk assets. Uh, So by that, I mean, you know, there's some really good property-backed companies like Select Harvest, like Bunnings Warehouse, uh, that we think will be long-term beneficiaries of people wanting to own more hard assets
0: when you say hard as in they own assets
1: yeah so they may own they may be land backed by um fundamental assets rather than just you know a capital light model like some technology businesses for example Uh, but we think land or property is going to continue to increase in value and where you've got a a business that has an operating business uh, but you can see your downside for your share price is protected by the value of the land or property that feels like a really great you know one-sided risk opportunity you know, we're happy to take advantage of.
0: Tell me about Auckland Airport. That's another example, isn't it?
1: Yeah, look, that's another example of disruption creating an opportunity. They raised capital that really sees them have a bulletproof balance sheet now. And we participated in that capital raising because we think uh, it's a great asset. It's got some of those hard asset, uh, land value, downside protection that we talked about. And, They will also be a faster beneficiary of the recovery in travel because they have a very large proportion of their revenue that it's not just domestically New Zealand travel, but it's also with Australia. So if you think about their international travel, a very large proportion is actually with Australia, uh, with Australia creating a bubble with New Zealand, uh, we would expect that activity to rebound really fast.
0: Roughly how much of the traffic is in that bilateral travel?
1: Yeah, so about 40% of their international travel is is with Australia. So that's a very high proportion relative to other sort of travel companies. Uh, I expect that will go to a very high percentage as activity resumes. And that international travel tends to be higher revenue per person uh, revenue as well. So that should benefit them across a couple of dimensions. That
0: stock, since you supported the raising, is substantially up, which interests me I must confess that I've actually been Googling Lord of the Rings uh, tourist opportunities <laughs> yeah. in New Zealand because Good. I figure at some point I might go, which goes to your point. But, I mean, there's still a lot of things we don't know about air travel, isn't there? So how, how is it that your research made you confident enough to go in at that point? We still don't really know when it's going to resume. And I notice that New Zealand is now saying they think that they might pivot tourism from backpacker orientated to uh, the luxury market, which is kind of a nice, nice idea, but there are implementation issues around that as well. So even if it comes back for New Zealand, the 60% that is not related to Australian-New Zealand travel might come back in some different form, might come back on different numbers, it seems to me. So what is it that you saw about the rebound in air traffic that enabled you to support that confidently?
1: Yeah, I think the first point to call out is that's the only travel company that we own or have participated in any of their capital raisings. Uh, And it's because we think that the infrastructure characteristics of the airport uh, are very compelling, but also they have a unique, as we've sort of referenced, unique travel base in that they have a strong domestic travel base and we think that 40% of Australian bubble travel will actually um, be much higher than it has historically, because I think, there'll, as you referenced, there'll be a lot of people traveling between Australia and New Zealand who ordinarily would travel uh, further afield. So they're going to tap into a much larger addressable market and rebound much more quickly.
0: So that 40%, historical 40% share of the bilateral trade may well be higher.
1: Much higher. Yep, I agree. And you know, I contrast that with some of the other travel companies where they don't have the infrastructure asset, where I think it will take a long time for international travel to rebound for those companies, where we don't think they're actually well enough capitalised to see their way through what will likely be a more protracted uh, downturn in international travel. Uh, and the other point to call out is for a lot of the travel operators, international travel is where they make all of their money. So unlike Auckland Airport, who will see some really good recovery in activity from their domestic travel, most of the travel operators actually really lean heavily on international travel. Uh, we think that's going to be slower to rebound, taken together with the fact that their cost bases are higher, they're burning more cash and probably don't have the liquidity uh, for a protracted downturn. You know, we've stayed away from those because we just can't build the confidence.
0: Katie, okay, you always know you're at some sort of uh, potential in- inflection point in the market when... Groups of stocks start getting sort of bundled up in people's minds and given special names, and we've got one in this market now. They're the wax stocks. They're techs, and uh, they've been really charging up in the recovery from the March coronavirus low. What are the wax stocks?
1: Yeah, so the wax stocks are a group of technology stocks that have been, as you reference, really strong performers. They've been bundled up and you know, referenced as a, a group of technology companies that are all really compelling. We don't think there's enough differentiation of, of understanding of uh, the business models. Not all of those companies should be trading on 10 times sales or higher in some let's, cases.
0: Let's just run through them. What yeah. are they? So
1: they're WiseTech, Appen, Afterpay, Altium and Zero. Um, But I think what that misses is there's a number of other technology stocks in our market that we think look really interesting. Um, We're investors in some of them. But for whatever reason, these five have definitely got the lion's share of of the attention.
0: Have you got any of them?
1: So today we don't own any of those stocks, uh, but we do own some other technology stocks that we think look more compelling from a valuation point of view and where we think the durability of their revenue is attractive.
0: Which again comes back to the methodology you've been employing right through this.
1: Yeah, so we own Next DC. We've been long-term shareholders there. What do they uh, do? So they're a data centre operator. And as you can imagine, in an environment like COVID, you've seen a pretty significant acceleration in cloud adoption. Yep. So as people go into the cloud, then the need for data centres is greater. And they've been an absolute beneficiary of that. Um, we like Next DC. It's a really long-duration revenue business. By that, I mean recurring revenue day in, day out, year after year. Uh, their revenue is predictable and tends to be very sticky because customers don't like to shift data centres. It creates a vulnerability in their business. uh, And once you're in, you're in. Uh, And so they've seen that um, in terms of their revenue uh, being really, really sticky.
0: And presumably they run it clean. I remember when uh, the telcos were red hot at the turn of the century, we started getting inklings about overvaluation and um, valuation issues when we discovered that some of the telcos We're so confident about uh, recurring revenue that they are, in fact, pulling future year revenue forward in various ways and booking it in the current year. Next DC doesn't do that. It knows or it has a high degree of confidence about its revenue, but it books it when it actually comes in the door.
1: Yeah, that's right. And look, the the thing for us uh, investing in small caps is cash is a really big focus. And what you're referencing there, and I'm old enough to remember that is that you need to be really acutely focused on cash when you're investing in small caps and making sure that the cash flow and the profit are talking to each other. And by that, I mean, sometimes and often we find uh, companies are reporting profit uh, when we look at the cash generation, it tells a completely different story. So for us, uh, a big part of why I think we've done a reasonable job of avoiding not all but, but the majority of, of what I call the blow-ups in the small cap sector is because we're paranoid about making sure we understand uh, which companies are generating cash uh, and whether the profit is a reliable indicator of how the business is travelling.
0: The A in uh, the WAX group, Afterpay, has certainly been one of the leaders price-wise. It was below ten bucks. Uh, at the bottom in March. Uh, it got over 100 bucks not so long ago, it's uh, come a little bit off. There's eight companies like Afterpay, buy now, pay later companies in this market now, so they're almost a sector within the tech sector themselves.
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's not just eight ASX-listed companies, but there's at least 15 in the sector in Australia. So there's been a massive proliferation of, of players.
0: And international players ready preparing to come in as well.
1: And in addition, yep, exactly right, international players looking to come in. So um, what that tells us is that there's really low barriers to entry in this industry and obviously, a number of players attracted by the success of Afterpay, who, by the way, have done a fantastic job of creating the sector. They've done a fantastic job as a first mover in gaining really important market position uh, with their retail customers uh, and really created a brand. So, you know, it's been a, a fantastic consumer finance story, but that's what I think is, is important to understand. This is a consumer finance business that needs capital to grow because it lends money and so therefore it's actually got a capital intensity about it that's probably not well understood because what most investors are focused on actually is the revenue growth. And this probably gets back to where we think differently than I think some parts of the market around technology is we want to understand not just the revenue growth but how durable it is and what the economics of that revenue look like. So how much capital they need to deploy to achieve that growth and what margin they're going to get on the back of it.
0: If I can just pull you up there, do you mean that they need capital to support what they're doing or that they need capital to actually fund it? Because my thinking has always been basically, well, in Afterpay's case, I think it's 10% that they charge the retailer at the point of sale. And I'd always assumed that that was basically their, their chief funding mechanism.
1: No, so they, they do need capital. Uh, so typically it's about a 4% margin that they charge the retailer, but they, they're effectively lending. You know, they're lending for that eight-week period that yeah. the consumer has the money. So on average, you know, a four-week holding period. Uh, and so they need to fund that receivables book. So every time they grow, they need to grow their equity base or their funding base right. to actually support that receivables book. Which looks very different to a lot of other technology companies who don't have that a receivables book, where usually they're often capital light in that they don't need uh, a lot of capital to grow, or they're running their capital costs through their operating profit and growing organically. So it is a very different model, and that's one thing I think that that perhaps people haven't focused on. The benefit afterpay have had though is they've been able to raise capital at extremely high multiples. Yeah. So that cost of equity has been very cheap for them. So while there is a capital intensity, it's come at a relatively cheap cost. Compared to a bank, for example, funding its credit card book, where the banks that have a, a price today of their equity at one times book after pays raising capital at 20 times sales multiples. So, you know, they've had a distinct cost of, of funding advantage, which they've put to good use in terms of their growth.
0: Can I make, uh, make a confession right now? <laughs> I uh, am a little bit worried that regardless of how you're actually picking stocks in this market bottom up, that there's a general tendency right now for shares to be overvalued, and tech shares in particular. And I'm thinking really about the discount rate effect, which was at work and was a reason the market was relatively high before coronavirus, and now presumably is at work even more strongly because rates which we thought were as low as they could go have been driven even lower as a central bank defence against the economic impact of coronavirus. What do you think about overall market valuations in, in the arena that you're working in? Are they too high as a general observation before you even begin sifting with, within there to find the ones that are good to own?
1: Yeah, I think you make a really good point, Mel, that equities is now really the only asset class that can income. Pretty much the only gain in town. No, it's the only place you can go to find an income. Yeah. And so we talk about three being the new five. And by that, I mean 3% yield, if it's sustainable, is really the old 5% that we used to look for as a sustainable dividend yield that's compelling. Uh, And it's highly probable that that goes lower as well. So I think you're right. There's definitely an element of valuation challenge within the market. But our view would be that's pockets of the market, not the market in entirety. And, you know, we've talked about technology as being one place that that's happening. And certainly our view would be that there are elements of the technology sector where no matter which way you turn them upside or or downside, you cannot get anywhere near making sense of those valuations. And what I think is happening here is there's not enough differentiation of the different business models. And we we talked a bit about it before. All technology stocks have been lumped into the same bucket, which is high growth. And not enough thought has been given to whether... 10 times sales, multiple, makes sense for all of them. There's some that really just, it doesn't make sense. And I think this year has been a really good example of seeing how those business models perform. Are they really durable revenue streams? Are they really recurring in the way you would have hoped? You know, we saw Altium and Wysteck, for example, have profit downgrades because COVID hit their revenue. So does it really make sense that those stocks should be trading on know, 10, 15, 20 times sales multiples when there is an economic sensitivity, when there is uh, the possibility of the disruption happening uh, and when the revenue is not as durable as perhaps people had thought.
0: We had a, a giant tech boom in the 90s that peaked and then crashed uh, early in uh, the 2000s. Were the share price to earnings ratios then anywhere near what we're seeing again, as a general observation, anywhere near what we're seeing now?
1: They were worse. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, I'm old enough to remember that time and I remember it well. And the difference is the technology um, boom then was actually concepts. So the companies that were IPOing, the companies that everyone was getting excited about, by and large, were actually concepts that almost had very little revenue. Yeah. People were valuing them on option value on eyeballs. Remember that concept of I people talking eyeballs, about yeah. a multiple of eyeballs? Um, yeah, so the yeah that's right. Is, there was
0: no actual cash flow.
1: No. So we didn't have to argue about durability of revenue. There just wasn't any. So the good news is what we're arguing about today is businesses where they're typically established business models, where they are generating revenue and where you can actually form a view on, on the profit. So it, there's no question that that we're in a better place today around the, the technology sector than we were then but also against a backdrop of, you know, we think some really interesting industrial companies that have been left behind, you know, there's elements of that sector that that do look completely overheated.
0: Let's talk a little bit about ESG, environment, social and uh, governance. It's a filter you apply and it's interesting to think about how how it might work uh, in a crisis like this. I think during uh, the global crisis, the focus on ESG, actually declined a little because companies were looking at more sort of an existential threat and uh, they narrowed their spending uh, and ESG became a victim. Uh, But I think these days there's reason to believe that won't be the case this time. And that ESG is much more centrally located in what uh, what companies do. What do you think and how has it worked?
1: Yeah, so ESG filters have been absolutely firing in 2020 but I think that's more structural than related to the crisis. As we sit today, there's increasing and enormous amounts of capital that are prioritising ESG factors uh, in the way they invest. So the industry funds have been thinking about, super funds I'm talking about, have been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, It's been a long-term focus. The retail funds are starting to prioritise work and, and focus on this area. So you now have huge amounts of capital that are focused on ESG. And I think that hasn't shifted in 2020 despite the crisis. And if anything, I think it's accelerated the focus. And so what that means is you've got a large amount of capital that's chasing the ESG winners. And I'm talking about here companies that might be focused on renewables or recycling or who have strong governance outcomes. And you have a large amount of capital that is also avoiding what I'd call the ESG losers. So this year's ESG loser has been coal. Uh, where any company that's got even a first or second derivative exposure to coal uh, has seen a big impact on their cost of debt and their cost of equity as people seek to avoid it when putting that ESG screen on the way they, they look at their investment opportunities.
0: How have you been applying it during this period?
1: So how do we think about ESG? Uh, it's very much embedded in the work we do on every company and in industry we invest in, and we think about it as you know assessing risk so for us, it's thinking about what are the long-term impacts of ESG around the risk of the companies that we invest in, and how is that going to be priced? So what you've seen is, over the last uh, year or so particularly, is the risk and the pricing of that risk is happening very quickly. Whereas if I go back three or four years ago, uh, we did a lot of work, for example, on the aged care sector, and we were worried about some of the social issues. Uh, we definitely didn't predict a Royal Commission, by the way, but that's work that we did around the S, the social issues, uh, led us to avoid that sector. And it took three years, maybe even four years for those issues to become evident and priced into the stocks and priced into the way that people think about risk of that sector. Today, that's happening much faster. So where those ESG uh, factors and risks are, are thought about, Uh, We're finding that it gets very quickly priced into stocks, both in a positive and a negative way. It's important to keep thinking about it, but that's a really interesting shift that's happened this year. And so, of course, the risk of going forward is that we might actually overprice that So, you might actually find going forward that because of the flood of capital is trying to find ESG winners, that they get overvalued in the Mm. same way we talk about the technology stocks. And in the same way, you might find the ESG losers are starting to have a big cost of equity and cost of debt disadvantage that may actually go too far as well. And coal, as I mentioned, is a really interesting example where we've seen companies that are suppliers to that sector having really big margins on their debt and struggling to get access to equity capital. And we may have gone too far with that one. But well,
0: public equity at least. When public private, equity, that's right. Private equity, you wouldn't have to think, would maybe have a look at that.
1: Well, I think private equity might take advantage of that. You know, an interesting one for me this week was uh, there's a a company that's exposed to the coal sector, but they're not a coal producer. They're a supplier uh, to the sector, struggling, you know, in terms of an IPO. But North American investors are interested still in that part of the market, Uh, whereas Australian investors do seem to be ahead of the curve uh, in terms of both focusing on and worrying about ESG risks.
0: When we talk about risk, we're also talking about reward, it's a risk-reward trade-off. In ESG, are you managing more to avoid risk uh, than you are to look for reward? Or are they two sides of the same coin?
1: Yeah, I I think there's definitely easier to to identify the ESG losers. So those companies that will struggle from an industry point of view over the the medium to longer term by virtue of of those risks. But there are plenty of uh, opportunities on the other side of the coin that we think will be beneficiaries. You know, waste recycling, for example, you know, is a theme that we've been doing some top-down work on that led us to invest in a company called Bingo Industries, leading recycler in Australia. You're starting to see government money flowing to that sector. Mm. Uh, You'll see pricing power, I think, uh, as they go forward uh, for recycled product over other product. And, uh, you know, that's a, a really good example, I think, of where the positive ESG effect that they should be a beneficiary of that.
0: Has the ESG process or the investment analysis process inside Yara changed in any uh, way during COVID and because of it? Has it forced, if that's the word, any changes in the way you've gone about things?
1: No, I don't think so. I think we were always mindful of those risks. We're always thinking about it We do top-down work on a whole lot of thematics around different areas. So we've done work on modern slavery. I mentioned the circular economy and waste, you know, a whole lot of sectors that we've done top-down work on. But we always combine that with the bottom-up work on the company or the industry or the sector.
0: But again, it sounds like predominantly looking for things that you should avoid rather than things you should go after.
1: Yeah, no, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think we're definitely finding opportunities to invest in companies that are positive beneficiaries uh, you know I've mentioned a couple, but there are Bingo. there's a long list Bingo, yeah yeah there's, but there's a long list of, of others where we think they'll be beneficiaries uh, longer term. You know energy is another sector, for example, you know we think gas is going to be a winner relative to coal and other energy supplies, you know so there's there's a number we think will be winners as well.
0: Has everything that you expected at the start of the coronavirus market event panned out pretty much as you expected? if not, let us know about some of the surprises. And one that I'm interested in is, is the call for capital from companies unrolling pretty much as expected. There was certainly an immediate crunch, an immediate liquidity crunch, and, and a call for capital that was met, I think, and uh, you participated in some of those. Then it seemed to go quiet. Maybe now it's picking up again. Is that right?
1: So I think nothing went as expected during <laughs> that environment. It was a surprise a day. And that's why you want to have uh, investments in companies that are pretty resilient and yeah. that have great balance sheets to withstand that. But uh, no, it was definitely not as expected. And I, I think you called out something there that, that actually didn't play out the way we expected it to. Uh, we thought it would be more like the GFC uh, with the capital raisings coming in a flood. A monster flood at the start. And there were some at the start and it felt like the flood was starting and then it stopped. And I think that was a combination of a couple of factors. You know, one is that the market rebounded pretty quickly and what that meant is people and boards took that as a sign they could pause and wait to see how things played out. I think the economy rebounded much faster than people thought as well and it's a combination, obviously, of of government money shifting into the pockets of the consumers and the corporates and that helped enormously. Uh, It was also monetary stimulus as well in terms of interest rates coming down, and that gave people confidence and certainly saw capital coming back to markets again. So a combination of all of those factors meant um, we rebounded much faster. Uh, than anyone thought. uh, And the the wall of capital raising literally stopped. So I think the numbers are, you know, we probably only had about 15% of the capital raisings that we had in the GFC, which is a much smaller number. The capital raisings you're referencing that we're seeing today are actually more on the front foot. This is back to acquisitions, growth, investments, and raising capital for that purpose, not for liquidity shortfalls and, uh, you know, to shore up balance sheets. Yeah, this
0: is not uh, rescue day. This is I've got things I want to do now.
1: Yeah, this is growing investing dough, which is exciting. And the other thing that we're seeing today, which has come back with a vengeance, is that wall of, of IPOs that were delayed for nine months because of COVID are all now with the markets being very strong, access to capital being really strong as well. There's a wall of IPOs that are coming to the market, uh, some that look really interesting, but you know a number that are probably being opportunistic.
0: Uh, So has everybody got enough money to support this new or renewed capital raising and IPO rush?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think um, there's still money coming into equities via super. There's still that structural growth. Um, And
0: super liquidity levels are still pretty high, I think, aren't
1: they? Yeah, and I think the withdrawals from super through the early withdrawal scheme probably haven't been as high as a number of the super funds had expected. A number of them had retained cash In anticipation so my expectation is as we go through the end of this year and into 2021 we'll start to see some of that cash that the big super funds have redeployed uh, back into equities as well so there's no question uh, there is plenty of of access to capital uh, to support the ipos and and the demands of companies as we go through
0: yeah but as you say as always it will be selective the uh, the ones that look like opportunistic grabs are probably going to do it less easily or do less well than the ones that have got really solid business plans or expansion plans.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And one area that probably looks a little opportunistic at the moment is the retailers that are coming to to IPO. What's been astounding this year is how retail has rebounded uh, with consumers having money in their pocket, higher discretionary income uh, by virtue of not spending on travel and entertainment uh, and having saved through COVID, people are now investing and putting that money into consumption. Uh, And so the retailers, quite astoundingly, for the most part, had an incredibly positive Mm. year. As a consequence, you're seeing a number of retailers looking to IPO, a number of them have been sitting in private equity hands. uh, And, you know, as we talked about opportunistically in some cases, not all, uh, looking to take advantage of that strong retail consumption to IPO. The way we think about IPOs is very much through a reasonably cynical lens. Uh, Often we don't have long history with those companies. We need to build conviction in the company, the industry that we're investing in. Sometimes that's through, you know, having an ongoing relationship with management, watching the company, uh, getting confidence around the numbers and how they perform. So, you know, we tend to invest in very few IPOs uh, and tend to be relatively cautious, but adopting that lens of, of needing to have, you know, a high level of conviction.
0: It was interesting what you said about uh, the capital raises, that uh, there was a a rush and then it stopped. So was it the same with uh, profit downgrades? And where are we at with that? Is it possible that we can say downgrades are behind us or might there be more?
1: Over the last few weeks, the earnings trend has just turned decidedly positive. So I think we can say with confidence that the downgrade cycle is done. And we're now seeing more upgrades and downgrades. Over the last week, it's been incredible. We've seen upgrades from a range of sectors, telcos, ag, financial services companies, building, construction. Uh, So it's actually a very broad-based upgrade cycle. And I think it will continue to underpin share prices from here. And I think very clearly uh, we have moved past that downgrade cycle. And a combination of factors here, I think. Firstly, I think it's, it's that it wasn't as bad as feared. So analysts probably downgraded harder than the reality turned out to be. But as you just referenced and as we talked about earlier, the economy has bounced back harder and faster than I think anyone expected.
0: Do you think that there's a small company or big company bias on uh, the impacts of corona on the way through and the potential recovery positioning on the way out? I thought that uh, maybe uh, uh, small companies might be more exposed, but I've actually over time refined my thinking on that and I now think that they might actually have more flex and be more nimble and be able to actually bounce out of it more quickly. Um, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of factors there. Australia has performed better, as I referenced earlier, both from a health and an economic point of view, and small companies tend to be more exposed to the Australian economy than larger companies. Yeah. Just by definition, large companies will have more of their earnings offshore. And so if you're looking for how do I play Australia, how do I get exposure to that relatively better performance, you know, then small companies, absolutely. I think the other element is small companies tend to do well when risk is on and when people have more risk appetite. And I think we're definitely in an environment where that's happening. And so it would be my expectation that that discount that the small caps trade at relative to the large caps will continue to close over time. The combination of both of those factors. And of course, then we've just got to make sure we pick the right ones. And so our process is very much around, you know, the bottom up, identifying the sort of 35, 40 stocks that we think uh, look the most attractive against that backdrop.
0: All right. Katie, thanks so much for uh, talking to us today. It's been great. Uh, Good luck with uh, the rest of the year, but uh, you seem very well placed indeed.
1: Thanks, Mel. Great to catch up.
0: The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you liked what you heard, and we hope that you did, hit the subscribe button and share it. And lastly, of course, the disclaimer. The Yarra Exchange podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs, and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.